Holy Spirit, come and speak to us in our need. Speak to us in our longing. And help us to see that you're the one that we long for. In Christ's name, amen. I want to talk this morning about friendship. It seems to me that some people, a lot of people, have lost what it means to be a friend. Especially some of us Christians. And I'm, I'm not talking about the people who are easy to get along with. But I mean the ones that we disagree with. And yet who are in, with us in the faith. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, a little disclaimer here. There are absolutely people with whom we need to sever fellowship due to reasons of safety. And I'm not talking about those people today, but I'm talking about those with whom we hold different viewpoints. And yet, we are together in the one holy Catholic church. So I could think of a lot of reasons that we struggle with friendship today. Technology not being the least. Has anyone ever misinterpreted a text message or an email that's been sent to you? Yeah, well, every hand should be raised unless you just never text message or email. I would say letter, letter writing aside um, is different today with a handwritten letter. There's already this premise that the other person cares about you enough to take the time and effort to put paper to pen and fold it, put in an envelope, stamp it, put it in the mailbox, and wait for you to respond, right? So side point, I, I think we all need to be sending more handwritten letters. I might even call it a spiritual discipline. But in terms of communication and friendship, it isn't just technology that hinders friendship. It's a lot, actually. And maybe the biggest reason is that we've kind of been swimming in this pool of individualism in a culture of outrage. And we've been sold on this idea of the one individual rising above the rest and becoming great and being told things like, you do you, right? Or I don't care what you do or believe, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to and believe over here. And all the while, there's just so much anger in the air fueled by this underlying collective narrative that you can trust no one. And when that kind of thinking inevitably makes its way into the church, we have major issues on our hands. And so, by the way, consider this a primer for the political season we're entering into. Now, we heard 1 Corinthians chapter 8 read this morning, um, savored every word. And as for the Apostle Paul, the one who planted the church in Corinth and who is writing this letter back to them after he's moved on, he's addressing something similar with them. It isn't that the Christians in Corinth are so much saying, you do you and let me do me. There is some of that going on, but it's more that they're willing to endure the fracturing and the breakdown of friendship in the church because of their death grip on belief. And one of those areas of divisive belief for them was over food. For some, mostly the Jewish Christians, it was that no one under any circumstance is to eat food that's been offered to an idol or a false god. And then for others, they said, well, food is food, right? Someone just 
make sure there's paper plates and napkins and let's it, it's kind of it would I would imagine it was like when we dismiss for the 10 o'clock service and all of the kids stampede out to the tables that's that's what they were like and yet while these two groups argue there are these two things happening one is that their own relationships with one another are fracturing they're losing their unity in Christ because of their convictions over food and second the new Christians and the ones who are kind of on the outside of the church looking in are getting confused about what they should be doing. Some of them even see the Christians eating the food offered to idols and they come to the conclusion, oh, well, these Christians worship other gods too. Some of them look in at the arguing and infighting and they say, I'm good. And Paul, in a very Jesus-like way, says, you know, you people seem to know a lot, and you defend your positions well. This is my translation. But the foundational issue here isn't who's right or who's wrong about food. The foundational issue here is friendship. Now, you'll notice that I use the word friendship instead of love, which is the word that Paul uses. Friendship's actually not even a word in this passage. But a little Greek lesson for you, the word for love used here is agape. And it can kind of be unfolded and defined as a warm regard and an interest in another person. It's affection, not physical attraction, that's eros. But agape is a deep and warm and heartfelt and nurturing and abiding love between friends. And I don't think that we should miss that, that we should miss this much fuller definition and the fact that Paul has used the word agape here with these angry and divisive Christians because unlike our individualistic culture that says, let's just get along, you know, you do you and let me do me. Paul says, no, you Christians, you people of the Jesus way, you are called to the deepest of friendships with one another. And as God has called you friend, so are you to call one another. Catholic priest Ronald Rollheiser said that genuine friendship is actually a participation in the flow of life and love that's inside the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, agape is the activity of love shared among God and Christ and Spirit and our practicing of agape is like a subsuming of ourselves into this circle, into this activity of holy and heavenly and earthly love. And so there may be no greater sense of divine presence than to experience the genuinely warm and present and kind and gracious company of a close friend. And if we in the church, as in the days of Paul and these Corinthians, if we can't exemplify this kind of holy friendship to the world, then we give them very, very little reason to come and see anything we have to say about Jesus. And though we all say amen to that, the responsibility is on us to be faithful stewards of friendship in the church. If you were here last week, we talked a lot about the past year and, and celebrating what God has done and in and through Church of the Apostles. And we, we talked about stewarding our resources well. 
caring for those things that God has entrusted to us. You know, these buildings, this beautiful property, our, our staff. But something else for all of us to consider is that we are perhaps most importantly to steward our friendships well with one another here in the church. Because if we can't get that right, how on earth will we steward anything else with the care and grace and love and attention that is required for those other things? Now, for these Corinthians, Paul says, here's how agape plays out in this situation. First of all, food is food. And there is only one God. You aren't defiled by food alone. It doesn't make you more, it doesn't make you less in the sight of God, but your concern is what your food and your eating of it means in the sight of others. That is where you risk defilement. Why? Because our lives are communally representative of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Paul actually says that later in this letter, that we are the body of Christ that our lives are not individualistic. Our lives are not our own, but they are interwoven in the fabric of the one holy church. And so what they do, what we do, matters to one another. What I do matters to you and what you do matters to me. We're not isolated in this. So Paul says, be careful. If you, if you can eat the food that's been offered to idols in a way that doesn't risk harm or condemnation to another, then go for it. Eat up. Those idols aren't God, but be careful because you're not your own. You're part of a community of faithful friendship. And when your conscience strays outside of that truth, that you're part of that community, then you sin against God and the community. My very first Sunday here at the church Back in 2017, I sat right here on the front row and Father Mark preached a sermon on the communal nature of sin. We've talked about it since then, but I just remember that, that time. Um, sin is never an isolated event with isolated effects. It is always bigger than we realize, more dangerous than we imagine, and more costly than we can afford. And that is why we need one another. We need the church. You need me. I need you. This isn't a community social club. We as the church are the very tangible expression of agape, of God's love for the world. And yes, we mess things up royally from time to time. And news media and podcasts and bookshelves are filled with the stories of the harm that has come to others in the midst of churches. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. But I'm here to tell you, that God does not desire for his children to square up in the boxing ring and duke it out over dogma. Paul goes on to talk about this in a few chapters that right belief means nothing if we don't have love. God doesn't need us to defend him by living uncharitable and angry lives. But what he does desire to the core of his eternal being, is that those he has created with great love and affection would steward that love toward one another well. We don't know, 
you know, everything that Jesus prayed throughout his lifetime, we only know what's given to us in the Gospels, but we do know a very specific prayer from John chapter 17, where Jesus said that he, that he prayed that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. And I believe more than what the greatest and most articulate apologist on the biggest stage could do, that when the least of us loves like that, that God is most visible. Now back to what's happening with the Corinthians and this debate on food. The temptation here might be to take this to a sort of fundamentalism, to say, you know, I'm never going to eat or drink, fill in the blank, right? Lest someone see me and be tempted to believe something that isn't true about God. And I would say while that can be helpful, and temperance and moderation should be a part of the conversation around the things that we eat and drink. What I would really hope our thoughts turn to are all of the ways we are embracing and welcoming and holding space for friendship. The question isn't, are we, doing, are, are we ourselves doing something the right way? The question is, are we postured to love well? Love is truly the guiding and sustaining force of the gospel in the church. So with the heart of a pastor, Paul pleads with these Corinthians to agape, to friendship, to love one another with the tender and gracious and warm and affectionate and kind and generous love of God. And in making this point, Paul so beautifully turns the issue on its head and he says, you know, if a particular food is the reason someone falls out of step with the goodness of God, then I'll do all that I can to avoid that food. You see what he, he does there? It's like a, I, the picture I had in my mind is a Jenga pile, right? And the bottom bricks for these Corinthians is right eating, right food. And all else is stacked up on top of that. But Paul, like a Jenga master, right? He, pull, he pulls out those two outside bricks and he puts the right ones in, which are, should have been there in the first place, which is love, agape, friendship. Because love is strong enough to bear the weight of all else. I'll never forget Dr. Bob Stamps when I was in seminary. Dr. Stamps was the dean of the chapel. He was also my professor of sacramental theology, which is just a fancy way of saying he taught us about baptism and communion. Uh, his wife, Ellen, this is a total side note, but his wife, Ellen, was a longtime friend and secretary for Corey Tinboom. She had lots of great stories. But Dr. Stamps and Ellen lived a few doors down from us in our student housing. And on the night that Lynn went into labor with Annie, Annie was our, for those of you who may not know, she was our second child who we, we found out early on in the pregnancy um, had a condition that allowed her to grow and thrive in the womb, but that she wouldn't survive long after she was born. So when Lynn went into labor with Annie and we began to prepare to head to the hospital, Dr. Stamps called me over to his apartment. And I sat down with him, and I'll, I'll never forget, he was, he was drinking a large glass of buttermilk. And I knew it was buttermilk because he offered some to me. I politely declined, and he, he smacked his lips, and he said, Yeah, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> Scotch for Methodists. And Dr. Stamps, uh, he just sat there. I sat with him, and it was really quiet for a long time. 
And when he finally broke the silence, he said, you know, Gabe, sometimes I think it's just all chaos and God's just left us in it. Silence again. And I'll tell you that in that moment, I felt seen. Not because I believe that God has left us all to chaos and chance, and I knew that he didn't really believe that either, but in his honesty, in his inability to reconcile a loving and powerful God with a world in which a baby can grow and thrive in the womb, only to be born to die 45 minutes later, in his honesty, in the brokenness of that, in the heartache of it all, his admittance was that, I just really don't understand. And I felt seen and known because neither did I. And 12 years later, I still don't. And after a moment of quiet again, Dr. Stamps leaned in and he asked me to lean in. And he said, when that little girl is born, no matter what, you baptize her. You take her mother's tears and you baptize her. Do you hear me? And I said, yes, sir. And that's what I did. And you know, the, the magnificence of what he told me to do there can't really be put into words, but I, he knew that it, it, it is perhaps most especially in the deepest pain and longings and things that we can't understand that the sacraments, the, the bread and the wine and the water actually shine and bond us and lead us to the heart of God. You see, Dr. Stamps, he had plenty of right belief. He had plenty of right belief. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was a man of deep and abiding faith. He was orthodox and spoke truly of God. But out of his deep love and connection with me in that broken and terrible moment of waiting for my wife to give birth to a child who would not live, Dr. Stamps was willing to suspend the temptation to make sense of it all. To suspend his promotion of right belief and orthodox words in order to connect with my heart, in order to love me in a much truer way. Now listen, I'm not telling you all to start saying weird stuff about God, okay? Let me be clear. We're, we are going to stand up after I'm done here and we're, we're going to say the Nicene Creed. We're going to pray together that's creedal faith. Part of the reason that we do that is to correct anything that I've said in error. We are, we, really, we do that every week. We are still in here a people of particular belief and theological conviction. Okay? But we are also a people of agape. And the two are not at odds with one another. And so as for me and for what I commend to you before anything else, before anything else, before anything else, love one another. Pursue friendship. Pursue agape. As God in Christ has pursued and loved you and called you friend. Let love be the guiding and sustaining force, not friend circle, not politics, not lines in the sand, not commonalities, not convictions, theological or otherwise. Let it be love. It is the only way that any of us has the hope 
of fulfilling God's desire that we be one. Let us pray. Christ Jesus, our Savior and our friend, teach us your way of love that among us, a people so prone to dispute and distance that we would draw close to one another, close to you, pursue agape above all else, and in so doing, we would find ourselves in the very flow of life and love of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These things we offer, our lives we offer together as friends. Amen.